fine design that sets it apart from the lookalike. Business is built on data, facts, and figures. It's also made up of some of the most fascinating stories the world has known. What makes business tick? What are the stories we can find in their failures and victories? Get ready to find out what some of today's leaders were thinking right now on Business Disrupted. Here is your host, Ted Gavin. Welcome to Business Disrupted. Today, we're talking about the business of putting together the quadrennial endurance contest that brings tens of thousands of people from all walks of life to a city that has invested millions of dollars in the spectacle, all to proclaim a winner. And yet everyone is tired and out of shape and is wearing silly hats and most of the parties are awful, which means we're not talking about the Olympics. No, today we're discussing what goes into putting on a national political presidential nominating convention and what happens to an event designed to attract 100,000 people when you add COVID into the mix. Joining us today from New York City is Joe Salmanese, Chief Executive Officer of the 2020 Democratic National Convention. In his post-election life, Joe now serves as Senior Vice President for Government Relations and Communications for the Montefiore Healthcare System. Joe, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So first things first, how does a CEO of a political convention get appointed? Uh, well, um, funny, I was listening to you describe what it is that I was appointed to be the CEO of TED, and I thought to myself, why did I ever want that job? Um, <laughs> so um, uh, uh, the parties uh, go through kind of a three-part process to determine, uh, or I should say to pull up their convention. Uh, they, they invite cities to submit bids. They go through a site selection process where they literally put a committee of people together to go look at the cities that have bid. And then uh, at the end of that, they think about, you know, once they've picked a city, they think about um, who they'd like to have come run it. Sometimes it's the same person who runs the site selection process. Sometimes it's not. But it's the chair of the party, ultimately, who invites uh the, or, or I should say, who asks the, the individual to c come on board and serve as the CEO. And of course, um, the chair of the Democratic National Committee, Tom Perez, uh, who just finished in his role there last week, uh, is someone who uh, prior to that, uh, he, he was both the Secretary of Labor in the Obama administration, as well as the head of the Civil Rights Department um, in the Justice Department. So I knew him through, um, you know, th through my previous work and his and um, he uh, and I got together and he talked about um, how excited it was that the Democrats had just chosen Milwaukee uh, and whether it was something I would be interested in doing. And um, it isn't something that I thought I would be doing, but I wanted to do my part um, to help with something that I knew would be um, you know, important to the electoral process, important to, to helping to elect a Democrat. And so I, I decided that I would do it. So you mentioned that cities will put in bids to host a convention. What makes a city want to host a national political convention? So, uh, you know, I, I think there are two motivators. Um, one, of course, is the economic impact. And so, for instance, in, uh, in Milwaukee's case, even Scott Walker, the Republican governor of the state at the time that they were bidding for the convention, you know, even he thought the Democratic convention ought to be here. He probably thought the Republican convention should have been there. But, um, you know, he was for a convention coming to Milwaukee, to his state, purely for economic impact. The other is the sort of, you know, 
often disputed idea that um, bringing a convention to a city raises the profile of the city, puts it onto a national stage, uh, and in doing so can somehow contribute to the electoral success of that state. Right. So, you know, um, would having the Democratic convention in Milwaukee um, result in Democrats potentially winning the state of Wisconsin? Well, and that that's an interesting point because there seems to be a pattern in where the parties decide to hold uh, their nominating conventions. You know, Democrats, of course, surprisingly lost with in, in 2016, so they hold their 2020 convention there. Um, the Republicans in 2012 held their held their con- convention in Florida, which they were surprised to lose in in the previous presidential election. Um, same with uh, Ohio in 2016 for the Republicans. They they lost Ohio in uh, in in 2012, and and the Republicans you know held their convention in Philadelphia in 2000, which they had lost Pennsylvania in the previous election. So coincidentally, these are all what people would call swing states. So there there seems to be a, a certain calculus there. Yeah, I mean you're right. It, um, it is, it is, you could, you could sort of define it as either, right. They went to the place that they fell short and thought they needed to put a little more firepower there, or it's just a matter of sort of going from one swing state to the next, right. Either, you know, Cleveland, Milwaukee, Tampa. I mean, you could on two finger on two hands, you could probably name the number of cities that determine the presidential election. I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, Phoenix doesn't, become a part of the mix or maybe someday some of the cities in Texas, but you're right. I mean, the, the, the historic sort of notion is that you do a convention in a determining city in a determining state. So one would even argue that Tampa and Orlando would be better places to do the convention in Florida than Miami. But but let's let's look for the Democratic National Convention in twenty four to be in my in 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 Miami Dade County. If if the last election tells us anything, that that'll be the focus. Yeah. Well, I I think that um, you know there were two. Well, um, one of the things I did wonder about taking this job is how much of a line you could draw from the convention happening in the state. And it actually contributing to victory in the state. You know, people said to me, oh, the Democrats had their convention in Charlotte and Obama lost North Carolina. They had it in Pennsylvania. Hillary lost Pennsylvania. Um, I think that, you know, I I think that said more about the the campaigns than it did about the convention. But I I think I, I thought to myself when we were planning a conventional convention, it would bear some reflection to sort of think about if there were ways that you could sort of look to the convention to see that it actually contributed to the outcome in the state, uh, which mm-hmm. would then, of course, um, you know, back up your point that maybe we ought to head to Florida. But of course, this convention became something completely different. So I don't know that there's much to um, do there right. by way of analysis that way. Sure. So you mentioned the the economic impact, the positive economic impact of a city mm-hmm. and a state hosting a convention what does a convention bring in terms of the economic engine? What type of job creation, what type of money does a convention bring to a, a city? So for us, um, 
you know, before COVID, when we were thinking about holding a traditional convention in Milwaukee, uh, we, we really projected that uh, it would generate anywhere from 200 to $225 million uh, into that city and, you know, in the surrounding areas economy. Um, most of that money, of course, comes in the f- sort of the form of hotel rooms and venues licensing and, um, you know, all of the things that you would think of when people come to a convention and spend money there. Uh, and then, you know, as you mentioned, there's also the economic impact that goes with um, hiring people locally to actually put the convention on. Um, and, and the sort of the big line items there, uh, again, are around the, um, you know, construction, right, the, sort of the building out of the venue, the creation of um, a, you know, a worldwide television show. So using local electricians and, um, uh, you know, audiovisual folks and lighting folks. Um, and then, you know, things like security and transportation. Um, you know, we, we, we probably had about 100 people on our staff, but just in terms of, um, you know, the biggest contracts really went to those sorts of things, construction, security, things like that. And to, to get this, this net economic and, and, and job impact, what does a city have to do in order to win its bid to get a national convention? What, what goes into their commitment? What do they have to do to get it? Yeah. Uh, so kind of, I, I think of it in sort of two ways, right? They do, you know, all those things that cities do that seem really crazy to get anything, you know, like we want Amazon to come here. We want the Super Bowl to come here, right? So they do all sorts of things that to the outside world looks kind of crazy. Why would you ever do that? But, you know, it's all, as you mentioned, in the name of economic impact. So they do a lot of that. You know, they do a lot of, um, well, we will ask every hotel in, you know, a 50 mile area to turn all the rooms over to you and, um, you know, design an agreement that, you know, sort of um, is um, attractive to the convention coming here. So they do a lot of that. And then um, they put together a host committee, you know, the city puts together a host committee that is often sort of run by the mayor and business leaders and labor leaders. And, um, you know, in the case of Democrats, you know, progressive leaders and um, uh, they, they, you know, they, they do just like you would do to tra- attract any convention, right? They kind of put on a show and they, the sele- site selection committee comes through, they show them the venues, they show them where the convention would be, they, talk, they show them how many downtown hotel rooms there are, they kind of show off the city uh, in a way that um, helps for you to see that it would be a, a good place to have the Democratic National Convention, both in terms of the logistics, right, how many hotel rooms, but also you know, if you bring the eyes of the world to Milwaukee, Wisconsin over four days in, you know, August, what are they going to see? You know, how, how are we going to sort of, um, uh, you know, put the best that Milwaukee has to offer on display? And um, so they, you know, that's what they do. The financial considerations and the, you know, sort of the, the things that they put in place to make it attractive financially are obviously key, uh, you know, in terms of ultimately the site that gets selected. So I remember having conversations with people who were attending the 2012 Democratic Convention in Charlotte and, yeah. and having conversations with people who were going to attend the convention in Milwaukee. And one of, the, one of the ever-present elements of those discussions is there's not enough room 
to house all of the people? How many hotel rooms need to exist? How many beds have to exist to successfully host a convention and everybody who attends it? Yeah. Um, so for the Democratic convention, and, and one thing that um, I think is sort of interesting, I didn't know it until I started this, but you know, Democrats have 6,000 delegates who attend their convention. Republicans only have 3,000. Um, so we just need more rooms. And so uh, the, the, the model is that um, you, need about, you need to be able to count on about 15,000 rooms and then you sort of put a pin in the middle of downtown and you draw a circle out to see, you know, when it is that you get to 15,000 and how far out you'd have to go to get all 15,000 rooms. And in the case right. of uh, Milwaukee, it was about, you know, an hour, which is, you know, the, an hour is about the circle within which you want to have all those rooms that you need. And, and, and interestingly, and, and, in, in, in Charlotte, I was going to say in Charlotte, one of the challenges was that that circle was about a 90 minute circle to encompass all that people needed. And, and that's not, that's not counting the, the homeowners who simply said, I'm leaving town for the week. And they put their, their house up on Airbnb and, uh, and, and explored the benefits of the free market for desperate people looking for, for a place to sleep. Yes. Yeah. Airbnb is a big, big part of it. So you mentioned a host committee for that works on behalf of the city. So once the, the, the city has been selected, what does the host committee do? How, you know, who, who decides who's on the host committee and what do they do in the time between when the site is selected and when the convention happens? Mm -hmm. So in the case of Milwaukee, the host committee, um, you know, and, and, and these are, they're kind of organic things, right? A group of people come together and say, we should try to get the convention here. And in the case of Milwaukee, it was the mayor of Milwaukee. It was um, Alex Lazary, whose family owns the Milwaukee Bucks and who served as the finance chair, uh, some labor leaders. It was a, a, you know, a group of people who came together to get it done. And, and their primary responsibility is to raise the vast amount of money that goes into putting on the convention. They also help with all sorts of local issues, um, you can imagine, from ensuring that we have the appropriate people locally to sing the national anthem or, um, you know, but, but also just, in, you know, things like, um, make, you know, security and making sure the streets are accessible and, you know, is all of that. But, but the primary responsibility of the host committee is to raise the bulk of the money that goes into putting on a party convention. And, and what's the, what's the commitment? How much does the city or the host committee commit to raise before and have in hand before the convention starts? So as part of the, both the site selection and the, the, you know, the process of getting the convention, that's one of those things when I mentioned, you know, a lot of these things are financial there's an agreement between the DNC and the various sites about how much the convention is likely to cost. And in the case of uh, this past cycle, the agreement was roughly $60 million that there needed to be $60 million in place to run the convention. And so the city would um, take responsibility for finding the $60 million for writing a plan with, you know, local businesses and, um, you know, Democrats in the case of the Democratic Convention, anybody who wanted to 
see a successful convention. And they, and, and so a part of the site selection and a part of them getting the convention is, uh, you know, a degree of certainty on the part of the DNC that that host committee can raise the amount of money that is needed. And then um, in entering into the agreement, so when we entered into the agreement with Milwaukee and we signed the agreement with Milwaukee to host it, a part of that agreement was not just that they would raise the $60 million, but you know, to your earlier point, that they would hit certain thresholds at certain points in time over the course of the year leading up to it. And, and so separate and apart from the host committee, you then have the convention entity that you ran as yes. CEO. What does that entity do uh, as, as differentiated from the host committee? Yeah. So, you know, it's an interesting thing. And um, I think it's surprising to people that the host committees, so in our case, the Milwaukee host committee and in the Republicans, the Charlotte host committee, you know, there is this view that every four years, parties put on their convention and it is the civic duty of the parties to put on a convention and nominate their candidate for president. And so, you know, it's more a civic activity than a political one. So renting the venue and all of the, you know, police and security and buses, all of the costs that are associated with that are raised by the host committee. In a, that, that money is non-political. There is this agreement, right? Both parties are going to do this thing. It's part of the American civic engagement tradition and that, and so be it. Then there is the sort of, right, you go into the convention hall and you turn your television on and you watch something every night for four nights that is, you know, patently political and that is raised, you know, that is paid for with political dollars. And so I oversaw, you know, sort of the whole of the convention, but the, the part of the budget that was the Democratic Party's responsibility was a, a smaller version of the budget. Um, and as I described to people, right, it, it was the budget that went to pay for what you saw on television. So in a traditional convention, that might be um, speeches and videos and balloons and all of the stuff that happens on the stage. In this convention, obviously, it was a much more of the sort of producing of the content, you know, that people saw. So, so the host committee is building the theater, the, the convention, the, the entity that, that you led was putting on the play inside the theater. Right. Writing, producing, uh, casting. Yes. The play. And, and so what does that organization look like? You were, you were CEO, you had a staff, there was a budget, there was a structure. Mm -hmm. What does it look like? So, um, you know, it, it is a, not unlike what a staff would look like to run a major event, um, probably not as big as the Olympics, but, um, you know, what you would imagine a, a major nationally televised four-day event would be. And so we had um, a staff of somewhere between 80 and 100 people, and they kind of fell into things like security and logistics and operations and um, uh, things like that, and then communications and um, writing and producing. And uh, so, you know, a, a kind of a, a staff structure that would look like 
event management and television production, I guess is the best way to describe it. So um, like you said, right, build the stage, work with the Secret Service on what the security perimeter is going to look like, um, create a narrative and a storyline, um, figure out who's going to speak, write the content, um, you know, and then the fundraising folks and the administrative and the finance. So um, it was a big multidimensional process and, and things like the fact that it, you know, was a secret service protected event meant that, you know, like our security staff was much bigger and a more complex operation than you would find in a, you know, a traditional kind of a four-day event that didn't have something like that. Sure. And if you're just joining us, we're talking to Joe Salmonese, Chief Executive Officer of the 2020 Democratic National Convention, about the business of putting on a quadrennial national political nominating convention. So, Joe, you were talking about uh, what the organization did and what your organization looked like structurally. In terms of your action plan, what were the thresholds that that you needed to meet? You know, how many sponsors did the convention need to have in in hand by what date? How many dollars needed to be raised by what date? Yeah. So uh, as I mentioned, we started out with about a um, sixty million dollar budget, and that needed to be raised over the course of a year. Um, and you know, for for uh, the ease of explanation, you know, we sort of. Um, I think we needed 20 million by the end. I'm going to get these numbers wrong. Kind of 20 million by the end of 19 and 20 million by the end of the first quarter of 20 and 20 million by the convention. And um, a lot of that money came from sponsors, corporate sponsors, individual sponsors. Uh, One of the challenges about Milwaukee was that uh, the venue, the um, Pfizer 4 Marina was a beautiful arena, but it was small. So a lot of what we were doing was trying to figure out how to, um, create experiences for those sponsors that would make them feel like their money was well spent because prior to COVID, most of how you sold an election was um, on the experience of being there and right. on you know what you got access to being there. So uh, the, the business plan and the fundraising plan was, you know, was rather straightforward. A lot of traditional people who invest in conventions, a lot of people and corporate sponsors in the Milwaukee area who maybe had not before, but found this to be a, you know, an opportunity they would like to um, utilize to you know, shine a light on their work. Um, and, uh, you know, and then, you know, sort of, so, so all of the financial pieces were fairly straightforward. There, you know, there's kind of a model for conventions um, prior to COVID, I keep saying, uh, you know, that worked there. I think for me, and, and this really gets it, I think, what made it a success. For me, um, the, the focus was equally um, important in terms of, you know, what it was that we were going to be showing to the American people, you know, the sort of show that we were going to be putting on and how it is that we could do that in a more impactful way, both in terms of what we showed and who we targeted, you know, in terms of who we had to really speak to uh, in this election cycle. So in 2020, as in 2016, as in 20, or 2008, um, the Democratic Convention didn't, was not built around an incumbent. And so you're putting on this convention and you're responsible for the content of a convention that will ultimately be to nominate someone whose identity hasn't been determined yet. And, and so 
I'm interested in how the convention interacts with or coordinates with the primary campaigns. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, they don't for an awfully long time. And of course, in this convention, you know, if you remember back to late 19, I remember thinking, you know, remember all the talk of a brokered convention? Remember yeah. for the longest time, everybody said, we're going to have a brokered convention. We're going to go into the convention without a clear nominee. And so, you know, for us, what we really needed to do was to map out um, what we thought was an appropriate storyline. And you're right, in, in, in years when, you know, even in Donald Trump's convention, right, Donald Trump was very much a part of what that storyline looked like for the Republicans. But for us, uh, we had to map that storyline out on our own. We had to build sort of the framework of what we thought should happen when, uh, and then kind of wait until we had a nominee. And fortunately, Vice President Biden was the nominee earlier than people thought we would have a nominee. And we were able to, you know, interestingly enough about that, he was becoming the nominee as we were starting to grapple with COVID. But at any rate, right. we, um, uh, you know, we sort of sat down with the Biden campaign when he was the presumptive nominee and said, you know, this is a framework of a storyline we've thought through. These are the elements that we think should happen and when they think we, they should happen. You know, what do you think? And um, fortunately, they agreed with most of what we thought. So, so while, while the 20, each of the 20 Democratic nominees or almost each of the 20 Democratic um, uh, candidates contenders, if you will, they're, they're shot at peaking early in Iowa months before the, the primaries or caucuses started, um, come super Tuesday and the weeks following super Tuesday, it looked like things were coalescing around the, the now president. When, when there is a clear front runner, when do they start taking over uh, input into the content? So, um, when when they are really the the presumptive nominee, when it's you know, I mean, when when they sort of reach a threshold that um, that makes it clear that they are the nominee, I should say that with the Biden campaign, there's kind of um, as I mentioned, we were realizing he was going to be the nominee at the same time that we were realizing that COVID was going to require us to do something very different. So uh, our conversations with the Biden campaign were very much about how we thought the convention would need to unfold in a different way in anticipation of us ending up where we did. So a lot of, and I think if um, uh, there was a moment there, I think when it was not quite clear between Senator Sanders and Joe Biden, they were sort of, um, you know, they were the only two left. And I, I think we even reached out to the Sanders campaign with some of those, you know, kind of logistical, you know, we're very far away from content and writing, but we just want you all to agree that this is what we're going to have to do given COVID. Right. Okay. Well, we're talking with Joe Salmonides, CEO of the 2020 Democratic National Convention about the business of putting on a quadrennial political convention. We're going to short break for some messages from our sponsors. When we come back, we'll be talking about what happens to politics as usual when COVID comes to town. And while we're gone, if you happen to hear a voice tell you to buy something, it's probably best that you just do what they say. (laughs) 
Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Gavin Solmanese is the experienced leader for complex financial matters, restructuring, and litigation consulting. Whatever your situation, we have the ability and know-how to restore troubled companies to profitability and growth. We've successfully completed financial advisory engagements for hundreds of companies that have gone on to renewed health and success. No matter the size or complexity of the case, our clients always work directly with senior professionals and receive exceptional work product. We know that asking the right questions is always the first step in defining the true problem. Generating alternative solutions and finding a clear path forward is what we do. To us, it's all about results. What you do next is what counts. When there are tough decisions and hard choices to make, you need smart, strategic people beside you. Choose the team who never stops working until your problem, dispute, or financial crisis is resolved. Visit Gavin Solmanese at GavinSolmanese.com or call us at 302-655-8997. We hear it and read about it every day in the news. America is heading over a fiscal cliff. Home prices are still receding and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. You are listening to Business Disrupted. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to contact at disrupted.business. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. We're talking with 2020 Democratic National Convention CEO Joe Salmonese. Joe, before the break, we were talking about coordination between the presumptive nominees campaign and the convention. Uh, and, and, and that takes us up to kind of the end, chapter three of the story, which is executing on the actual convention. Um, what does the month before a political convention look like for the running the convention and the team putting the convention on? Uh, well, for us, uh, you know, it looked like it, it, it looked very different than it would in a traditional convention. Uh, because for us, I mean, just to give you an example, I think 10 days before the convention were when we found out that Vice President Biden wasn't coming. So for this convention, the last month, which is the only one I can really speak to, was completely chaotic just because um, the, the, the public health landscape was changing and getting worse and worse and worse, uh, particularly in the Midwestern states. And so for us, it was a matter of um, kind of changing up what we were anticipating doing on almost a daily basis. 
And and that's because July and 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 well, late June and and July saw a pretty marked resurgence mm-hmm. of of COVID cases. Um, kind yeah. of the the second wave began in earnest and uh, and 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 really took over events. Yeah. So yeah. under normal circumstances, absent COVID, what would be in in the months and and the weeks before the convention happens? I think a lot more um, logistical stuff. You know, one of the things that somebody said to me at the very beginning of this, probably the best advice I got is, um, I mean, you described at the beginning of the show, right? Hundreds of thousands of people come and um, they're all, you know, there to have a good time. And um, and that uh, party conventions, you know, we, we're all on the floor of the convention and we all think it's the greatest thing in the world. And we're sort of filming that and showing it to the American people in the hopes that there will be a handful of compelling moments that, you know, they happen to find interesting. And so my goal at the beginning of this was to just try to make better television. You know, I thought if, if the ratings are down and, you know, people are watching an entire evening worth of stuff that they're not that interested in, in the hopes of getting two or three interesting moments, you know, why not um, sort of storyboard it in a way that would make for better television programming, which meant more production. Um, and then as uh, the, the pandemic sort of got worse and worse, we decided that we were really going to, um, start to broadcast from different parts of the country. You know, that if people couldn't come to Milwaukee, we would go to where people were. So for us, it was very heavily focused on production and then adjusting to the public health change in landscape. On a traditional convention, it is much more dealing with hotels and buses and security and when are people arriving and how do you get people from point A to B? It's, it's, it's very logistically heavy. So when was the decision made to change to a broadcast convention only to eliminate the live convention aspect? So we, um, at every step along the way, we followed, and this was very important to the Biden campaign, we followed the directives of the local Milwaukee health commissioner. So uh, when the health commissioner would say, you can only have a thousand people in one room, and then the next week she would say, you can only have 500. We were starting to reduce, you know, the number of people who we could put into the space. And about, um, you know, probably a month out, we began to realize that much more of what people saw was going to be produced programming uh, than actual live, you know, someone speaking to a crowd of people. There certainly were, as you may remember, people who stood on a stage in places like Milwaukee and Los Angeles and others and, and spoke. Uh, but it was probably 10 days out when the vice president decided he was going to stay home uh, that we realized that there would be sort of zero audience footprint um, oh, th- throughout the entire week. So what were the number of people, what was the estimate in absent COVID? What, what do you plan on, for attendees to a political convention? What was, what was the expectation? So most conventions, they, um, just in terms of the guests that they keep track of, you know, you're talking about 50,000 people. And then in the case of Milwaukee, that probably would have been about 20,000 people in the venue. 
So mm-hmm. in a, when you're thinking about programming, you're thinking about somebody standing on the stage talking to 20,000 people. And uh, to me, what was interesting about that is then somebody sitting at home watching it is watching someone speak to a crowd of 20,000 people in a particular way right, that you speak to a crowd of 20,000 people, and then you're sort of watching the reaction of the crowd, and you're kind of tracking on that interaction. So what we were particularly concerned about is, as the numbers kept dropping, and the health commissioner kept dropping the number of people who could be in that room, at what point were we going to get down to a number of people, you know, a 1,000 or 500, that would kind of materially change the whole dynamic, right? So mm-hmm. President Obama is going to get up and speak to 75 people like that's just not going to work. Right. You know, so, so at what number? So, yeah. What number do you hit that you have to decide you're going to completely change how you're going to have that conversation with the American people? And so at the end of the day, what was the total number of convention related people who were actually in Milwaukee, Wisconsin? Uh, it was probably in the hundreds, um, you know, maybe, I mean, it was certainly less than 500, probably less than 300, um, you know, probably somewhere around two, two, between two and 300 people. Okay. So we have a uh, question. Amy from Chilmark wonders how not having a live convention affected the businesses in Milwaukee and in, in greater Wisconsin who were looking for the income that that this influx of 50,000 people would bring. Yeah, it was really heartbreaking because, um, you know, we, we just weren't able to generate the kind of financial impact that we thought we would. I mean, as I mentioned at the beginning, um, some of that comes from building out a convention platform. So we certainly spent money on construction. And, you know, you talked about the number of people who were there working. They were all sitting in trailers and, um, you know, with computer screens in front of them. And, um, you know, we certainly, uh, you know, acquired a lot of television screens, like, you know, as if you were, um, I think I said to people, it looked like we were launching a rocket more than anything else. Um, so those sorts of folks, you know, folks in, in those areas of business got business, but the vast majority of the economic impact on things like hotel rooms and restaurants and transportation just did not materialize because people couldn't come. And it was, it was heartbreaking. Um, and it's one of the reasons we really held out hope that we could have some footprint. Um, but in the end, we just, you know, we came down on the side of public health and, and on this, the recommendation and ultimately the mandate of the city's health commissioner. Sure. What happened to the businesses who had signed up to be sponsors for a live convention? Did they stop being sponsors? Were there renegotiations? What, what, how did that work? Uh, some of them stopped being sponsors. Some of them, uh, um, you know, we, we had to find sort of different ways to make their sponsorship feel like there was a return on their investment. Um, but it was challenging. You know, it was hard. We did a lot of activities and a lot of events leading up to the convention. If you were sponsoring the convention because you wanted to sort of raise awareness around your, you know, Milwaukee business, we tried to think creatively about other ways to do that. Uh, some of our political allies, uh, you know, the labor unions and the progressive groups, and then some Democratic donors um, ultimately decided to continue sponsoring the convention. But they really 
had to be convinced that it was um, going to be something that would be uh, critically important to Joe Biden's election. So, so we so went from sort of an, ex, an experiential thing, right? You know, come right. and have all these things happen to here's what we're going to show the American people. And isn't that a compelling show? Don't you want to support that show? And, and I want to talk about the, the production of the show and particularly the content and the styling um, in a second. You mentioned three to 500 people on the ground in Milwaukee. During a time when COVID is just consuming the upper Midwest, uh, what was the testing protocol for people who were on the ground? What were the logistics of testing people, that many people in that concentrated an environment, and how often? Yeah. So we, um, one of the things that we did early on in the spring, which I think was a very good idea, is we brought on two uh, epidemiologists, Ian Lipkin and Larry Brilliant, who uh, – who really advised us on, you know, all of the protocols that we put in place. Uh, we spent about $3 million on testing. We literally um, created a lot of our own infrastructure because not only did we think that it was important to make sure that we were as you know, testing people and keeping everybody as safe as possible, but at the same time, we didn't want to take resources away from the city of Milwaukee and the testing that was um, going on there. So we built a lot of our own testing infrastructure. And, um, you know, what I always say to people is we moved from the Pfizer to the convention center. The convention center is connected to the Hyatt Hotel. And so what we basically did at a certain point was create a bubble. And once you went into the Hyatt Hotel, you more or less didn't leave. And you went through a walkway every morning to get into the convention center. And, you know, when you were in, you were in. And there were people who would arrive from out of town and get tested and have to wait a couple of days. And if they were found to have tested positive, they were, um, you know, they were obviously taken out. And, um, you know, there all sorts of protocols were made sure that, you know, that, that nobody was in that space that was not carefully screened. But it was a huge undertaking. So in terms of the production of the actual multi-day event, so you mentioned that some people were on a stage in the convention center in Milwaukee. Some people were on a soundstage in Los Angeles. Joe Biden was in Delaware because if Joe Biden's going to be anywhere, chances are it's going to be Delaware. Who was in Milwaukee for the production? You mean in terms of speakers? In terms of speakers. So ultimately, uh, when we really, when, when the vice president Um, determined that he wasn't coming and the plan was that everybody should stay where they were, then really the the speakers in Milwaukee were people who were there already and scheduled to speak, the mayor, the governor, Senator Baldwin, the lieutenant governor, um, you know, anybody who was living in that area and scheduled to speak spoke there. Otherwise, they spoke from where they were. And, and there was a moment, you know, when we even thought people close by, right, like Amy Klobuchar or Tammy Duckworth could come from where they were. But ultimately, everybody stayed home and you did what you did in the city that you lived in. So one of the things that happens at a national political convention is the party does party business. Um, party mm-hmm. committees hold hold their caucuses. 
um, the party platform is is debated and voted on and ratified. How did all of that happen remotely? So uh, it was all done virtually. We put all sorts of systems in place to do things like uh, allow the delegates to cast their votes, uh, which was a very different system than the one that we put in place for um, the the caucus and council meetings that you mentioned. One of the nice things about um, the the meetings, right, the things that happen, the business of a convention um, that that was a kind of surprise was, for instance, there's a you know a labor council. So delegates who are members of labor unions and labor union leaders come, and each day they have a meeting and they talk about everything from the party platform to um, you know, issues that are happening in the States. And um, I remember one day somebody said, you know, th- there's about 400 people that attend this meeting because they're open to the delegates and the general public. But this year, because it was a Zoom meeting, 4,000 people attended the meeting instead of 400. Um, so some of the business of the convention uh, because we tried to be as transparent and open as we could, you know, in this new medium meant that many more people get got to experience it. Um, and then, of course, you know, the voting, um, you know, the adoption of the rules and the voting for the um, the president and the vice president were, um, you know, sort of a whole other track uh, that we put in place that was specifically aimed at the, you know, 5,700 or so um uh, delegates that we have. That's interesting. So the the lack of brick and mortar presence actually made the Democrats' policy process more democratic. It it it, it yeah. eliminated barriers to access. In terms of the business of the convention that you described, absolutely. And and I also think ultimately, in terms of the show that people saw, because in the absence of being able to televise a traditional convention, that was one of the things that we were really focused on. How then could the show feel more accessible to people, right? There's nobody in the room. There's nobody getting access to something that somebody else does. So let's just really lean in on this idea that this is going to be accessible and inclusive and, you know, run with it. So you, you ran the first virtual and I, I don't like virtual because virtual means not actual and it was an actual political yeah. convention. Um, yeah. I prefer remote, but you ran the first virtual political national political convention and it was a week before the, the Republican national convention yeah. and the differences in how the speakers interacted with their audience could not have been more stark. Um, Mm -hmm. and I think you and I were talking about this months ago, but if you looked at the, the speakers at the democratic national convention, they were engaged in a one-on-one conversation with the viewer. Mm -hmm. Whereas at the Republican national convention, they were people behind a podium yelling at an arena full of people, which is what would have happened for the, at the democratic national convention, if they had been behind a podium having to yell over an arena full of people. So Mm -hmm. there was, it seems to me a huge stylistic decision made early on when, what was, tell us about that process about deciding what the feel of this dialogue was going to be. 
Well, I think um, one of the things that we did right early on, even before COVID, was you know be very insistent that there be a like a real storyline, right? For instance. On Monday night, we recognized we were in a very different place in 2020. We had to sort of take stock of the moment that we were doing this in, COVID and our racial reckoning and um, everything that was going on. And so we knew, right, that there was a storyline and we were going to start there and we were going to move through and we were going to go through the historic nature of Kamala Harris and introducing you to Joe Biden. There was an issues, you know, narrative that ran through it. So we had a storyline that we were really disciplined about. And we did not let politics and who needs to speak when tear at that. The other thing I think that we acknowledged earlier than our Republican counterparts was just what you described, that we were going to have to tell that story directly to the American people without that built-in audience. And so to do that, because you, you mentioned that Republicans were sort of yelling at a you know, small hotel room, a ballroom full of you know, 100 to 300 delegates, I think is what they had. You also had them yelling at nobody, you know, like, like those, those speeches that were given in the, um, in DC, uh, by many of those speakers, they came out and gave a speech that you would give to a convention hall of 20,000 people to an empty room. So there was never a kind of an acknowledgement on the Republicans part that they had to make that pivot. And um, I, somewhat feel for my uh, Republican counterpart because I don't think that they ever got the sort of mandate to make that pivot. With us, you know, I remember having a lot of conversations like Michelle Obama is going to speak to the American people, you know, like, like how you speak to the American people directly into the camera. It's a very different speech. It's a very different tone and it all has to change. And we spent an awful lot of time thinking about, well, what does that mean? You know, that means Bill Clinton speaks to the American people for five minutes, not 45 minutes. That means, you know, that, that the cadence and, right, there aren't any applause lines. So you have, to, you have to touch people's emotions and affirm, have people, you know, kind of process what you're saying in very different ways. And we spent an awful lot of time thinking about that. But I think at the end of the day, the difference was that we came to that conclusion and we acknowledged it and we embraced it, you know, probably a couple of months out. And the Republicans, I mean, you know, Donald Trump was announcing we're going to do the same thing we were going to do in Charlotte, but we're going to take it to Jacksonville, you know? Um, right. So they, ne- they, they didn't have, at least from the outside, it didn't appear that they ever even made that pivot to a different kind of a platform. You mentioned um, you mentioned Bill Clinton's speech and and you know managing managing Bill Clinton's time on podium has always been famously challenging, um, be, because he he can speak seemingly forever on yeah. any topic, and no matter where he starts, his his conversation will include everything about everything. Uh, the the man's yeah. knowledge is all encompassing. And that presents some some challenges, but at the same time, this seems to have played to to some of his strengths. I mean, the anybody who has ever seen Bill Clinton in a small group will say the man is the epicenter of charisma in the universe, and that has its its drawbacks as well as its benefits. But in a in a in a one on one video cast setting, that that seems to provide the control of time and schedule 
that that is always so challenging, but also gets the message across in a very personal and personable way. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and because I think, you know, Bill Clinton understood, right? When we said to him, this is one hour, you know, we, we were, we had two hours of programming, but most people only guaranteed to take an hour. So when we said to him, we're going to be on one hour a night instead of five. And I don't know if you, you know, and, and the world has changed such that everything's happening faster and, you know, nothing is live. And so for you to have the sort of impact you've historically had, you need to do this in this space. And this is what the rest of the night looks like. He completely agreed. Now, the great thing about that was that anybody else who complained about how long they got to speak, I could say, Bill Clinton speaking for five minutes. You know, if you're, <laughs> you're the lieutenant governor of a state who thought you were going to have 20 and you find out Bill Clinton has five, you know, he's, so, you know, put that into perspective. Sure. Um, so in terms of the, the actual television production, who, um, who were the people who ran the television production? You know, the director, so, the, the yeah. technical people. So Ricky Kirshner, Ricky Kirshner who uh, you know, produces the Tonys and the Super Bowl halftime show, he produced the whole thing. All of the, all of the amazing things that you saw, um, the same as with the inaugural and, and the vice president's um, you know, being on the Lincoln Monument the night before. Stephanie Cutter wrote the show. She, um, you know, most of the script and most of the content was under her. And then Rod O'Connor was um, uh, sort of the senior advisor that, you know, kind of made every impossible thing happen. When I said, you know, how hard can it be to do a roll call from, you know, all 50 states? He sort of rolled his eyes and went and made it happen. Well, there you go. Well, Joe... Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for sharing your experience and introducing our listeners to a world that few ever get to see or understand. Our guest has been 2020 Democratic National Convention CEO Joe Salmonese. Joe is on Twitter at Joe Salmonese. Join us next time as we explore the business of the airline industry and what it's going to take to make that business fly again, and whether airline profitability can only come at the cost of passenger comfort. Next week on Business Disrupted, the wild blue yonder operates in the red. Business Disrupted is hosted by me, Ted Gavin. Our executive producer is Robert Cellino. Our audio engineer is Aaron Keller. Our theme song and original music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Owen Salmonese is the best dog. Branding by Peg Fitzpatrick and PMG Group. Bumper music selected by Ellie the Wondercat. PR and social media by Carol Lunger, Emily Stern, and ABNC Creative. You can find episode guides, show notes, and sign up for our newsletter at our website at disrupted.business. Email your thoughts to contact at disrupted.business. You've been listening to Business Disrupted on Voice America Business and the World Talk Radio Network. Thank you for tuning in to Business Disrupted. Be sure to join Ted Gavin for another edition of the program and some more great stories next Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until we speak again, have a great week.